proclaim the praises of the one. Yeah, you're going out. Do you think it sounds good? Oh, I was gonna let. Liam, how's the sound back there? Sound okay? All right. Well, we'll, we'll go for it. All right.
Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, picking up the life of Jacob in chapter 25, verses 19 through 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins within her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, and they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Nick. Well, as you see from being back in Genesis, we're entering back into our four-part series, our four-part series through the book of Genesis by beginning uh, part three. Uh, we're doing it four sections. We'll, I think, take Jacob to Christmas Advent time, and then right in January, we'll get in the life of Joseph and finish up uh, in the early year of 2022 in the life of Joseph. It's been a fantastic series with some detours along the way, obviously, in the middle, uh, and at summertime, but uh, I had to focus this week and like really get my mind like to re-enter this ancient world that is not like ours in a lot of ways, uh, the ancient world of God's people, and this book, Genesis, that has caused more discussion, debate, and passion, and absolute, really magnificent wonder at God's working in early humanity. So you're ready to rattle your mind a little bit and re-enter this ancient world together because that's what we're going to be doing. So hopefully you've got your outline there. Grab it, get it out, fill it in to take some notes that will help in your growth groups that start this week. If you take notes and follow along and even look at the questions after today to start jogging your mind and heart. As we transition now to uh, the promised child Isaac that came to Abraham and Baron Sarah through her own faith and Abraham's faith, to now another barren family today. 
Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, and their sons that you just heard about, they're kind of weird sons, really interesting story, Jacob and Esau. But the truth is, the more we focus and the more we look at the heroes of Genesis, which David actually was just talking about, we didn't really talk about that, but that's exactly something we were going to talk about today. The more we look at the heroes of the story, think now, you know, back to uh, Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and now into Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Rebekah, the more we look at them, we see that the true hero of this story is actually God. When you look at the family and their lives, so this morning we're going to do that. We're going to look at the continuing family line of Abraham. That man, you remember now, he was the, 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 the man of promise, the man of faith. To see that promise continue, a promise of a family as large as the stars and a land and God's protection and blessing that was given to Abraham and the seed. Do you remember the seed all the way back from the beginning that was promised to Eve after the fall? Someone will come from your family line who will crush that serpent. That's huge, even for today, to think back to that. As the promise we'll see continues on to this family, but not in the way we would expect. Because God's grace in life never really works how we expect it to in God's upside-down economy, right? The first shall be last. The last shall be first. The older shall serve the younger. The weak shall be made strong. It never works in the way the world thinks it should. So we're going to look today at three truths that we're going to pull out of this passage today. So as I said, grab your outline and take a look. Our first truth is this, that God in this story, in this family, and in your life too, sovereignly provides and unexpectedly elects here the path of promise. Sovereign provision and this strange election that takes place. How many of you love um, previews at the movies? We don't really actually go to theaters anymore, but I see some hands being raised. Yeah, just the the idea of the previews, it kind of gives you a sneak peek at coming attractions, you know, in a world where, you know, that's usually what they say in those previews. Uh, They give us a look at what's coming and some idea of the story to kind of pique your curiosity. Well, today, this little story between Jacob and Esau functions somewhat like a movie trailer that's going to give us a preview, a framework for the next 10 chapters of this book of Genesis. And as we enter in, we see this is somewhat like repeated history. We've seen some stuff like this before. God makes these grand promises back to Abraham. As I've already uh, highlighted, the the, 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 um, descendants as numerous as the stars. And then he brings about hardship before he provides. Hardship before provision. Why? And why does he do that in your life so many times? He does it to show that human effort can never truly bring about God's blessing on its own, and he provides by his sovereign power and blessing. And he even elects, as we'll see today, to who to give that blessing to according to his purposes. It never works the way we think it should. Rebecca is barren. There's repeated history for you, right? And they're supposed to be the promised family. Again, Lord, how? This is a pattern throughout Scripture here. Maybe you're starting to see that now that we're into uh, Abraham and Sarah and now into Rebecca. Think of the daughter, her daughter-in-laws, Rebecca's daughter-in-laws, Rachel and Leah, which will be the wives of these two men. They were barren. 
Samson's mother, barren. Samuel's mother, barren. And Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, who was to pave the way for Jesus, barren. All barren until God's sovereign power intervenes, his sovereign provision. I'm sure, given the promises here, that Rebecca, she knows the family history. In fact, Abraham's still alive at this time. That Rebecca's thinking she probably expects to be pregnant immediately upon their marriage. But it was a good 20 years later, 20 years, at least 19, that Isaac and Rebecca prayed because they had the baby when Isaac was 60. Let's take a look at a prayer with strange answers underneath this first truth we're pulling out. A prayer with strange answers. Another question for you this morning to think through. How many of you, how many of you have been praying for something or more likely it's someone for 20 or more years. Think about that. You don't have to raise your hand for that one. But how many of you have been praying for someone or something for 20 years or more? I see some heads shaking out there like, yeah, I have. And actually, I've talked to multiple of you personally and know some of your stories of who you've been praying for for, for years. Here, Isaac, the promised miracle son himself, is faced with a dilemma. He's married at 40, and 19 years in, they still have no child. Can you imagine the doubt, the things that were coming into his mind, the way maybe even the enemy used that to, to try to unravel and undo Isaac? Our response to undelayed un, or, uh, delayed or unanswered prayers or promises, sometimes, maybe you've thought this way, makes you wonder and think, has God forgotten Does he even hear me? Has he forgotten his promises to me? Can you imagine, though, what life would be like or what you would be like if God answered every one of your prayers with a yes? (laughs) In the timing that you wanted. Over time, think about it. If that was the, the economy or the way it functioned for God, over time, who would be the one in your mind that began to kind of think had the power, the strength, and get the credit. Think about that. If every time you spoke a word, it was answered. Who, who would be responsible, do you think, for those answered prayers? Who would be the one that you begin to praise? Possibly yourself. Possibly yourself as you began to see yourself as this magic, self-granting genie in your life. Oh, look what I can do. Every prayer I say is a yes. I think that's possible. In fact, I think you might even begin to forget God altogether if you had magic words at your disposal. But what happens when a delayed request is answered in your life? What happens when a delayed request is answered? What do you do? You name your child Isaac. Do you remember that? Which means laughter that Abraham and Sarah did. The son of laughter. And you dance to the Lord and praise him. So here Isaac and probably Rebecca too, what do they do? They pray for 19 years and God sovereignly provides and she conceives. With what prayer have you given up hope? Which one of those requests or people that you've prayed for for decades have you given up hope on? Is that because you believe God doesn't hear you? Or maybe it's because you believe you've let God down so that he kind of isn't really coming through on his end anymore with you. You've just kind of blown it with him. 
Sometimes the delay in your life, much like here with Isaac and Rebecca, is so that people, so that you will see that we are entirely dependent upon God for everything. Everything. On God's sovereign provision in our lives, even like the Old Testament saints were, and He knows what is best. Whether it's a yes, whether it's a no, or whether it's a wait for 19 years. He knows. Think about this now. The snake crusher who was promised to Adam and Eve would clearly be seen as a divine provision with all the barren wombs that this seed had to travel through. Don't you see that? There's no way this could be something that was humanly brought about with all the miraculous intervention and sovereign provision that God does as he opens these wombs. And think of us in the New Testament. We're the spiritual seed of Abraham, the spiritual children of Abraham that we are, and we too are birthed by sovereign, divine intervention, spiritually dead, aren't we, the Bible says? Enslaved to sin, dried up, lifeless, not seeking God until he comes to bring life, opens the womb, so to speak. That's the way it works for us too. And he does. But man, was this a rough pregnancy. Did you see that in there? Look at the verse with me, verse 22. It says, the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? When we read it in staff meeting this week, someone read, the children snuggled in her womb. Just kind of popped out. I don't think it's, oh no, it's struggled, not snuggled. They struggled. The Hebrew says, actually, they smashed themselves together in her womb. A war in her womb is what we're getting here. And she says, why me? I didn't ask for this. Yes, we wanted to be pregnant, Lord, but I didn't ask for this rough of pregnancy. And in her struggle, she goes to the Lord again. Let's look at this prophecy now, from prayer now, to prophecy with unexpected outcomes. Because it's not what she expected to hear from the Lord by any, any means. This war in her womb would have results that would be far-reaching. These two boys would become two nations, one being Jacob, who becomes Israel, and the Israelites, God's people, the Jews. The other would be from Esau, Uh, who would become the Edomites, Edom, which means red, that word, and Esau, which means red. He was born, did you see here and there, red and hairy. We're not sure if she gave birth to a human or like an Ewok or something there. It's like really a weird detail. He comes out all hairy and red. I wonder if she was such a hard pregnancy. But what is so strange and incredibly challenging about this passage is the prophecy. Look at verse 23. So she inquires of the Lord again. It drives her to the Lord, her, her struggle. And the Lord says to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So not only would God's sovereign purpose, what he wants to do, be worked out in these two nations by his choice, for his glory, but he would offer grace and favor to the unexpected 
younger son. The unexpected outcome now. The older at this time in their culture, as we go back now to an ancient culture, it seems strange and maybe that's not fair. The older would always receive a double portion of the inheritance and carry a larger responsibility for the family name, the family land, the family provision, the family future, the family responsibility. All of those things would go to the oldest child. And now here it's turned upside down. Remember we talked about that? God's grace in his kingdom is always an upside down, unexpected way. But this has been the pattern of Genesis and will continue to be. Think back now. God accepts Abel's sacrifice, the younger brother, and rejects Cain. Seth was the chosen line, and he was the younger son of Adam. Younger Isaac was chosen over older Ishmael. And now here, younger Jacob is chosen by God's purpose over Esau. And then going on, we'll see in 2022, Joseph, he's one of the youngest sons of Jacob here, the man here, who will be chosen. And Judah, who will be the Lion of Christ, he wasn't the oldest brothers either. either. He was one somewhere in the middle. Do you see what God is doing? All through the Old Testament, he's showing us that it is his prerogative to shine his grace where he desires and chooses. He is God. He doesn't do it the way we expect or think he should. Stature and honor and positions and accomplishments do not get to direct or demand grace. Or maybe it wouldn't be grace then. Grace goes where God designs and chooses and directs it. And Genesis has shown us that all the way through. And it's no different in this story. The older shall serve the younger. My blessing will be on the younger, not the older. God does the thing that seems foolish. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that. He says, so that the glory goes to God, not the proud or the accomplished. And so 1 Corinthians says that no human can boast. That's why he does things in a strange way that seems foolish to the wise. So that no human can boast in his presence and God will get the glory. That's why he does it. Theologians have called this here, and uh, many, even regardless of their view on this, have called this election, that God chooses where to give his grace, that he, he elects, he chooses the younger son here. And it's very challenging, and it's been discussed by theologians and Christians for millennia, but it's here, and so we have to wrestle with it. God elects Jacob over Esau. For what reason? Or reasons? Why? What reasons? Paul picks up on these verses in the challenging chapter of Romans 9. So take, turn with me there today. Turn to Romans 9. I encourage you, read the entire chapter later today before your growth group. But it's an absolute necessity, this chapter, to connect to this idea. Paul picks up on this idea and this story of Jacob and Esau in Romans chapter 9, probably entitled in your Bible, God's Sovereign Choice. As we get there, let's take a look. Paul picks up this story to show us that nothing in us secures salvation, that God has way more freedom to do as he chooses than we ever would dare give him as humans. 
And I hope this stretches you today. It's okay to have our, 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 our theological categories rattled at times, even if you don't settle where I'm at on this. It's good to have ourselves challenged and think through the things. Look at verse uh, 10. Let's start in 10. 10 through, uh, where are we at? 9, 10. There it is. He says, not only so, but also when Rebecca, that's Rebecca of our story, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose, God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, so not because of anything Jacob and Esau had done yet, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I hated. Wait, 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 Paul. So God chose Jacob, not based on their goodness, or, or, or even a foreseen faith. That is not fair, Paul. That is unjust. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Okay, Paul. All right, so you're saying that here, but clearly this must be the only case of this. It's so bizarre and strange. Look at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Well, Paul, come on. If that is true, doesn't that just make us like robots? If God is that involved from beginning, how could, he, how could he find fault with anyone then? Wouldn't we be just mechanical robots if God is sovereign and working in all those things? Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Well, that just seems pointless, Paul. Why would God do that? Verse 22, what if God desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And therein lies the tension and the mystery of the Bible that God chooses, elects people before the foundation of the world, not based on their good works, and at the same time says, you are responsible for your actions, and you make real, meaningful choices. The authors in the Bible don't seem to have any problem with stating God's absolute sovereignty over all things, including salvation, and simultaneously that saying, humans are still responsible for their actions and actually even ultimately accountable for their rejection of the gospel. 
And the Bible authors seem to leave it there in front of us and say both are true. With Jacob and Esau here, going back to our story, as Paul has highlighted, God offers no explanation. And he doesn't tiptoe around his choice of the younger son or say, I know, I'm sorry, it's weird, it doesn't seem fair. Kent Hughes put it this way, the love of God transcends human convention. His sovereign grace will not bow to the order of nature or human expectations. His merciful election is a fact whether we understand it or not. Scripture teaches these things. God's purposes are set as they are incomprehensible. So what do we do with this? You're like, so what? Why does this matter? What do we make of this? We glorify God in humility, even if you can't fully understand it. We praise Him if we know Him in faith, and we grow our understanding that God is bigger than you and me, and His purposes are different than ours. And we begin to understand more and more that we are not God, and He is not like us in so many ways. And like Isaac and Rebecca, we do this. We let our struggles prompt faith because we know God is big, He is sovereign, and He has greater purposes even if we don't fully get it. Do you know, if you trust Christ today, regardless of how election works out, If you trust Christ today, do you know that that means he's been thinking of you from before the foundation of the world? Before you were even a twinkle in your mom and dad's eye. And it means, as Revelation says, this is not just Paul, this is all over the Bible. Revelation says, your name was written in the book of life before time began. So regardless of all the inner workings of it, shouldn't that comfort you today? that your name was in a place that was secure and held and certain, a place called the book of life? Don't you want to be in that book? It means that you can have faith that everything, every trial, every struggle that comes into your life is not merely allowed by God, but appointed by God. The story here from here on out in Genesis is is one of great struggle and pain and suffering, and yet God is working his sovereign purposes in the lives of the people. So what? So have faith. Trust. Live on that. Owen Strachan, a theologian and, and, and professor, it's long, it's two slides, but it's worth the quoting, said this about it. He said, the scripture does not teach that God merely permits trials and suffering and persecution, as if he merely has the holy jujitsu to counter them. Scripture teaches that God purposely appoints, ordains, and uses trials and suffering and persecution for our good, Romans 8, and his glory. Our hardships are all without exception, All appointed by a loving Father, they're sent our way not to destroy us, to refine and purify us. Our God is totally sovereign, and all that comes to pass is the direct outworking of his perfect will, a will that engages secondary causes in a major way. He goes on. The refining God does with all his children is not always a picnic. Would you say amen to that? It is a wholesale demo project. We are taken down to our studs and rebuilt from the ground up. 
But God is executing a glorious, even eternal work in all who are his people. So take heart. It's actually more comforting, he says, to know that trials are appointed, not less comforting. Your trials do not come from chaos. They come from a perfect holy will, the will of the Father. Stop thinking, in other words, of God as if he is just a little bit better version of a human being. As if the way we would define him in in our mind would be who he should be. Let God define himself in his word and us to live according to that. The children smashed together in the womb and God had a purpose in Jacob and Esau. And they prayed and they trusted and they inquired of God and he used the barrenness and the struggle in her womb to prompt faith and he has a purpose then in your struggles too. All of them. Pray, inquire, trust is what they did. So pray, inquire, and trust. The message is that God's promises are only achieved by faith in God's sovereign, supernatural dealings, as Alan Ross said. So let's return to these strange twins and look at the two brothers, you know, quick through point two. Two brothers and parents with absolutely different visions of life. Totally different visions of life. Did you catch some of that stuff that was going on in there in verses 27 and 28? So twins are born. Jacob comes out gripping a hairy red heel. Even his name uh, coming to mean over time heel grabber. Originally it probably meant something like uh, protection from behind, but over the course of his life and what happened between them as they grew older, his name started to come to be known as heel grabber. And God's chosen family, as you look at this, they don't come out looking too great, do they? They do not come out of this story looking very good. We've got two different visions here for life. Esau, who is he? He is an outdoor, outdoorsy man, a hunter, a man of the field, he's been called. Jacob was more quiet and doesn't mean he was more feminine by any means, but he's more contemplative and, and more shrewd as we see here. At his best, Derek Kidner said, he is toughly dependable, that's Jacob. At his worst, a cool opponent, detached, ready to make a deal. And Isaac now, Isaac, the, 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 the son of Abraham, the promised child, he loves Esau more because he feeds him good barbecue. <laughs> that's what it's saying. He loves him for his taste rather than his son's character. He makes a good steak, a mean steak. And Rebecca loves Jacob more than Esau. And we'll see later, she schemes with him to secure a blessing for her favorite son later on. Do you see how they don't come out looking the best out of this story? Esau and Isaac, we're meant to see them, these two, Esau and his father Isaac, we're meant to see them as being uh, driven by their appetites. Esau is emotional and prone to exaggeration, as we're going to see. And in this exchange between the brothers, neither comes out looking that great. So let's look at this exchange. We've got two different visions now for life, but let's look now how it impacts this exchange between them. When exchanging God, we'll see, for the things of God and Esau's life is an absolute recipe for disaster. Here's a big gulp. Cup. From Where? 7-Eleven. I, I was trying to think this week for our greatest symbol of American excess, and this is what I came up with. 
the big gulp. How can anybody ingest this much liquid? Take a look there. 30 years ago, the average soda was six ounces. This is, anybody know? 30, you, you, you out yourself if you know. 36, I think. It's called the extra big gulp or the super, the super big gulp. Today it's, today it's 32 ounces. This is bigger than 32 even. 7-Eleven's big gulp changed all of that. It was, it was revolutionary. It was the first of its kind. Their largest was even, uh, their largest ever was a gallon. Can you imagine pulling up to a light and seeing some guy go like, and it's Coke, you know, soda in this thing? I, I, I'm, I guarantee there was some, some product meetings where they said, how are we going to sell this thing? They called it Team Gulp. So, you know, it's for a lot of people. Yeah, I don't know. It was called Team Gulp. Was there ever more fitting image for our culture's propensity for excess than the Big Gulp? Now, if you're a regular Big Gulp drinker, this is not a knock on you today. Because guess what? We all think bigger is better. Each and every one of us. In all kinds of categories. From cars, to Costco products, to TVs, to grills, to lawnmowers, to burgers and beers, you name it, bigger is better, isn't it? It's better. We are people driven many times by excessive appetites, the big gulp. Now, appetite is God-given. It's good. He made us consumers in a way. We're meant to eat and drink and take things in our body. But when we take it to the extreme, it's destructive. Esau here was a man of appetites. And when he came in from the field in our story here, he came in and he said, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. I'm just starving. I'm so hungry I'm going to die. He wasn't going to die. But that's the type of man he was. He lived by his emotions and his appetites. The text basically says this. The red man came in from the field and said, if you don't let me gulp, it basically says that, or guzzle down some of that red stuff, I'm dead. The red man comes in going, red stuff, red stuff, red stuff, I'm going to die. That's, that's what the author's trying to let us get there. So here Esau has the inheritance. He's the oldest. The responsibility is the firstborn and to lead God's chosen family, and he's willing to exchange it all for a big gulp. That's what we're trying to get at here. He's willing to give it all up for a big gulp. Instant gratification is the mantra of our day, isn't it? We were watching an interesting movie with our family this weekend, a cartoon movie called The Mitchells vs. The Machines. It's pretty fascinating, actually, and probably okay. I would recommend it even for some families with your kids. It's a story of a family struggle to connect in a digital world. And at the center of that movie is uh, the man who runs a tech company called Mark. Ring a bell? Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook. And his company, Pal, which logo is like a mashup between Facebook and Amazon. I want us to watch this two-minute clip. We don't do this very often, watch movie clips, but I watched this weekend. And this clip, we're going to see the product release of the latest technology. And tell me if you can find the culture of Big Gulp in there. Let's play it, guys. Oh, yes. 
That's a dangerous overreach of corporate power. The neighbors are going to think we turn into a, a techno club over here. <laughs> Give me what I want. And if I've got to wait even 15 seconds for this slow Wi-Fi, I'm going to explode. Instant gratification and the ways of God do not mix. They don't mix. He doesn't work on our instant gratification timetable. It's a disaster for Esau. To trade one for the other as Esau did is always a recipe for disaster. So what is the question are you exchanging God for? What good things of God even are you exchanging God to get? For me, it's productivity. I'll just tell you mine. It's productivity. I was just talking with a ministry coach that I'm working with right now. Um, kind of through our, with our elders' support, um, about my inability to start my day with time in the Word and prayer. Because I'm so quick to be productive and turn on my computer and email right away. I am exchanging God for the things of God, productivity, which is not a bad thing in and of itself. He made us to work. But I'm exchanging God for it. What is it for you? Productivity, sexual gratification with porn, food, power, influence, control of your life, exercise, sports, leisure, time on Sunday morning, being healthy, wealthy, or maybe always right. What is it for you? What out of instant gratification are you willing to exchange God for as Esau did here? 
What are you willing to sell your birthright for, in other words? Because there's always someone there ready to take it, isn't there? Look at verse 31 and 34 with me. Sorry, I'm in Romans 9. I should probably go back to Genesis. Verse 34 says uh, this. Or no, 31. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is my birthright to me? So Jacob said, swear to me. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Esau's problem, really, is that he doesn't believe the words of God. He's got amazing promises in the family. And yet, He's willing to give it all up for instant gratification. And the commentary of the final verse doesn't even mention Jacob. Now, Jacob probably did some things that were inappropriate here too, but it says Esau Esau despised his birthright. Jacob, on the other hand, while not acting honorably, must have understood on some level at least that the value of God's good word and promises. And you look at this and you go, isn't it surprising that God would love either of these guys actually? I hope you're thinking that because we're meant to. Either God's sovereign choice over the one boy or the other, or by the reckless actions of God's chosen family, this story in some ways, does it offend you? Does it offend you? If you're looking at this story, are, are, are you offended by it? God's choice of one or the reckless actions of this family or Isaac and Esau driven by appetites and Jacob driven by his shrewd desires, if it offends you this morning, you may not know yourself as deep as you think you do. And maybe don't quite grasp God's grace as you think you do. The depth and scope of how sin has infected you and how sin was your master and how dead you really were in sin before God's awakening grace in your life. Your status as an, as an enemy of God, whose name was written in the Lamb's book of life before you'd ever even done anything. And the fact that God owes this family nothing, and he owes us nothing, and yet hasn't he been overwhelmingly gracious to you? He has. Are you offended by the story? Well, for all of us today, the solution is this. The solution is this. The solution to the scandalizing nature of this shameful exchange between these brothers is this, to see the great exchange that saved us. To see something even more scandalous than what Jacob and Esau did. Who's called the firstborn from the dead? Who is the firstborn? The son of Who is the firstborn of the family of God? Do we know who that is? That's Jesus Christ. That's Jesus. He had all the inheritance. He had all the birthright. And not only from his earthly life, from eternity past as the Son of God, the firstborn with every right, every penny of the inheritance was his. He's preeminent in the world. He made it. He sustains it. He's the heir of all things. And yet he was exchanged for you. He was exchanged for us. Romans 8 says this, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Be good to earn God's favor, basically. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. The firstborn son is sent and exchanged in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. Jesus has become condemned as the Son of God for us so that sin would be taken care of in our lives and so that you would get the inheritance in a good way, in a proper way, in an appropriate way, not a double-crossing way. What a shameful exchange between these two brothers. What a glorious exchange Christ made for you. And now the birthright is yours through faith. It's yours. Do you believe that? Or are you willing to sell it away for your appetites, for the big gulp? With birthright also comes the responsibility to cultivate it, to pour into it, to invest in the relationship with the Father who's given us the inheritance of the Son. We, we you as his elect people, have the privilege of living in the inheritance now as we fellowship together, as we growth group together, as we live this body life together, because the inheritance wasn't given so I could hoard it, so you could keep your big gulp and hold on to it to the grave. It was given to us, the gospel, so that we could give it and share it. We have Christ. The inheritance is him. Did you know that? The inheritance is a person. The inheritance is the King, Jesus. So we can share it with those here next to you who are near to and those who are far from Christ, those who don't know him at all. Don't sell the birthright for your appetites or for your pal Max. And trust in your trials, as these two did here, that God has always been sovereign over your life and he will continue to be. The trials are there to ensure the inheritance, actually, to make you just like the firstborn Jesus, to take you down to your studs and then build you back up as a, as a, as a palace you could never imagine. That's why. So you'll be just like the firstborn Jesus so that what he inherits, guess, inherits, guess what? You will too. Will you pray with me? Lord, we, we talk of difficult, challenging things today. We think about you in ways that maybe challenge our categories today. And at the end of the day, Lord, my prayer would be for each and every one of us in this room, that we would just love you more and praise you more and show gratitude more because of what you have done throughout history as the hero of the story, providing for people and two people who have never deserved or earned your favor. In fact, they've done the opposite in this shameful exchange. And Lord Jesus, let us live as those who grow even in a bit of our understanding of the depths of your grace today so that we too can live and cultivate and hold on to that inheritance of Jesus Christ to share it together and to share it with those who are far from you. May we sing in response now the power of your word and the love of our Savior. In Christ's name, amen.